Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Guardian. Twenty eighteen has been an interesting year. Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, will testify in front of the Energy and Commerce Committee on September 5th. Tech giant CEOs were brought up in front of Congress. The European Union's General Data Protection Regulation, known to friends as GDPR, goes into effect tomorrow. The General Data Protection Regulation came into effect in May, and our email inboxes were never the same. There is growing anger as to how it allowed the harvesting of 50 million of its users' private profiles. Cambridge Analytica was accused of harvesting personal data without permission. There are new signs that Julian Assange could soon leave the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Julian Assange is still in the Ecuadorian embassy, so no real change there. But he is apparently in some hot bother for not looking after his cat properly. It's been a big year for this podcast, too. I got to hear some of my favourite scores from some of my all-time favourite video games, played by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra at the Royal Albert Hall. And then, on a completely different note, I learned more than I ever thought I would about artificially intelligent sex robots. I knew about five million words the whole Wikipedia and a few dictionaries, but I still have so much to learn. I also have more... The last 12 months have been filled with tech highs and lows, so it's fitting that we finish off the year by reminiscing, laughing, and perhaps trying not to cry at some of the biggest stories that we've seen in 2018. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and in the run-up to that awkward period where you habitually write an 8 at the end of the date and then scribble a 9 over the top, we're looking back at what happened in 2018, and more importantly, looking forward to what we hope, and perhaps dread, to see happen in 2019. This is Chips With Everything. Have you read Kieran's new comic, by the way? Uh, die. Yeah, no, die. This, I, I decided this year to switch to trades because ah. I have no physical room for physical comics full stop. That's so funny because... I- As I mentioned, a lot has happened in 2018, so I'm not going to attempt to decipher it all by myself. So I invited my friend and colleague and The Guardian's UK tech editor, Alex Hearn. 
Alex, how's it going? Are you happy to have a holiday finally? I'm happy to have a holiday. I'm playing far too much Super Smash Brothers Ultimate Brawl Melee. I can't remember how many subtitles it's got these days. <laughs> Ultimate, because it has it's the ultimate version of the game. It's it it's got every it. character from everything ever in it. Except I'm... you have to unlock them all. So it's going to take you dozens, if not hundreds of hours. Which is great, because I'll probably be spending that much time playing it anyway. <laughs> what else would I be doing? Okay, so how about you start us off? Thinking back on everything you've written this year, which is a lot, mm-hmm. what has been the most interesting topic you've covered? The most interesting topic I've covered, it has been the just complete slow motion collapse of Facebook. Not yet as a company, uh, but certainly as... Uh, as as a, an organization that can portray itself to the public as a force for good, as, as something to be liked. The thing I always come back to as a hallmark for how uh, untrusted Facebook is fundamentally amongst the public at large is this, this persistent uh, rumor, conspiracy theory, meme that the company spies on you using your microphones to target you with advertising. Yeah, people won't stop talking about that. Everyone everyone believes it. Mm. it. It doesn't matter that Facebook says it doesn't do it. It doesn't matter that no uh, security expert has ever found any evidence of this listening operation. Uh, people fundamentally believe in their heart of hearts that Facebook is the sort of corrupt company that would do this and lie about it and persistently lie and engage in a conspiracy. You know, it, it, it occupies that tier of thought. And maybe one of the most damning pieces of evidence about um, kind of social media companies uh, being portrayed and viewed in this way is the fact that their own creators don't tend to use them as much or in the same ways as regular people. So I think I've seen you tweet before about how if you're a friend of one of the higher ups at Facebook, then you have you're treated differently than regular users. Absolutely. So this was a thing that came out uh, in November when we had this huge tranche of emails, which were through a circuitous route uh, released to the Department for Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee, uh, which then published them under parliamentary privilege. And one of the things these emails showed is that way back in 2015, when Facebook tightened up its privacy controls, uh, it, it removed the access of a lot of apps to friends' data. In hindsight, we probably think actually that was quite a good thing. Uh, it caused some fuss at the time. And one thing it did was it, it broke some apps that relied on that. The good news is, if your app was used by Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, or any of their friends on Facebook, you got specially flagged for enhanced treatment beforehand. In other words, you got warned about the change, you got developer time given to help you fix it. It's kind of, it's the anti-dog fooding, this principle in Silicon Valley that you should eat your own dog food, that you should use the same products that you're selling to your customers so that you know what's good and bad. Here, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg get special luxury dog food, which has no (laughs) problems, guaranteed to be fault-free. And you see this throughout the uh, throughout the industry. You get, for instance, Jack Dorsey, who is the most prominent tweeter uh, in, on the Twitter staff, but still tweets far, far less than his own company's power users. They occupy this, this weird realm where they get to rewrite the rules of the uh, social, uh, not the social network, but the, the community that we all live in. They live in a slightly different one. And I worry that on the one hand, that means that they they don't know what they're selling to their customers. They don't really understand what it's like to use their own products. And on another level, that it shows that actually they know that their products are not really great to use. They create anxiety and unease in their users. They let their uh, more prominent and successful users be open to unbounded hostility from 
a public which still doesn't quite understand the flattening and coarsening effect of social media. And they allow their uh, smaller users with fewer followers to kind of get caught up in this this weird fame game where every like and follow and interaction matters strongly to your self-worth, even though they're just numbers. So do they know something we don't then? Like Mark Zuckerberg famously puts a sticker over his webcam as we saw <laughs> in that image. Do do the people in Silicon Valley know something that the general public doesn't? So I don't think they know something. I think, you know, the, the standards of evidence for that are quite high. We would be talking about a sort of 1960s cigarette industry scale cover-up if they actually knew that social media was bad for you and didn't spread it. I think what they have is they have that same gut feeling that a lot of people who uh, got very into social media eight or nine years ago and have perhaps dialed back their use, that same gut feeling they have that just it, it just doesn't quite feel good and it doesn't feel bad in the same way that like going to the gym a lot feels bad. It feels bad in the same way that eating a lot of donuts feels bad. So over the course of kind of doing this this research into social media and its use by its executives, have you found yourself cutting back on your own use? I know you deleted Facebook a long time ago. Yeah, no, I have. Um, I, it was a pair of stories this year. It was that and also one about Instagram looking at why uh, why it makes so many people feel bad. Both of them combined to, to make me spend a lot less time on social media. Uh, some of that's been easier than others. Instagram, I have posted on four times this year and just dialing back on that has meant that I've opened it less often and it's kind of fallen off. Twitter has been harder to fall mm. off. I've I've used uh, Apple's new screen time limits to set myself a limit of an hour a day. Today I hit that at 10.30 a.m. I'm not very good at going, oh, well, I've hit the limit. Definitely won't just open up Safari and go to twitter.com. <laughs> oh, no, I've done that. Ah, oh, well, there goes the day. Your mention of Instagram makes me feel kind of bad. I don't know if you heard our episode about virtual celebrities. So we talked about the hologram superstar Hatsune Miku, and then we talked about this Instagram influencer who is a CGI, Michaela Sousa or Lil Michaela. Now, we spent an entire episode looking at what it was about these stars that gets people obsessed. I even had my little sister, Che, give me the goss on what Michaela had been up to. But despite learning just how non-real she is, Producer Danielle and I both started following her after that episode. <laughs> and just a couple of weeks ago, actually, I texted Danielle really excitedly because Michaela and a colleague of mine from The Gadget Show had both been at the same event. And I thought this was really cool. <laughs> do you have any theories on why Danielle and I are so obsessed with Lil Michaela? I actually, I, I do. I, I have quite strong feelings about Lil Michaela. The reason why you need a fake influencer is because being a real influencer is so destructive. You look at the first generation of huge YouTube stars and those who haven't just left the site are all breaking down. They are mm. all uh, really suffering under the pressure of producing daily content, of just doing that that chummy, friendly uh, self-expression in a way that makes everyone feel like they're your best friend. So why not build a virtual one who can be run by a team of you know 15 people who can take holidays and have days off and, and still Lil Michaela can continue to produce content endlessly. Yeah, and we talked about this in the episode, actually. She's kind of perfectly woke exactly. as well. And, you know, she's, she's always supporting good left-wing causes and yeah. can kind of do no wrong. I guess because because she's a because she's virtual, yeah, right? Because like, she, she she is the perfect up. Instagram star, mm. uh, which is you know one way of looking at that is it's it's great. It's you know it's saved at least one potential influencer from being chewed up and spat out the other side. The the downside the, uh, for for the humans involved is that 
it is literally an unrealistic standard. There is no way you can be as good at Instagram as Lil Michaela because you have to sleep. So the other big story that tech journalists like you and I cannot escape is algorithms. What have they been up to this year? <laughs> All of the algorithms. <laughs> what have they done? It is a very silly story, but I kind of think it, it was the the apotheosis of a bunch of different trends was this company I uh, did a mini profile of halfway through the year that was trying to use a huge bucket of social media data to build the perfect millennial baiting experience economy event. (laughs) Uh, This company ran a bunch of Facebook pages called things like Secret London, uh, which ostensibly you know, began as like, here are fun, quirky little things for you to go to. These multi-million follower pages that kind of just experience, uh, existed to share large one-off events, things like secret cinema, things like uh, cocktail pop-up bars and so on. And now this company has decided to go one step further and actually create events for its own pages using the social media data it has to tell it what works and what doesn't. Uh, so one thing that they that they did was uh, a gin themed cocktail pop-up in a double-decker bus that was Alice Wonderland themed in (laughs) Brooklyn which is like it's just a bunch of buzzwords thrown together gin cocktails Alice in Wonderland double-decker bus the bus had a thatched roof so right because that that ticks a box and by all accounts it was it was extremely good and it's just kind of It's these trends of, on the one hand, people using social media data in particular, but kind of just large data sources in general to try and automatically perfect things which previously had perhaps a little bit of human curation involved. But this this happens with Netflix as well, right? So Netflix looks at our viewing habits and then puts together different elements that it finds people like into new shows absolutely it, it does that like they one of the bigger tensions inside netflix as i understand it is between the kind of main core team who really want to use data to produce shows that are perfectly pitched at segments of their audience who they find are underserved by the content of the platform and the actual content creators who are still fundamentally old school tv types hollywood types who do still believe in the artistry of the whole thing. And I think there is a bit of a tension inside the company over that, which currently the the TV types are winning because the TV types have made all of the TV on Netflix. <laughs> and so fundamentally, like the successes on Netflix, if it's the Oscars, it's won and so on, can be pointed to the creatives, not to the, the algorithms. Have you ever had that thing on Netflix where it tries to categorize you with something really precise, like female-led shows with a supernatural twist from the 90s. I haven't, but I think that's just because I've never scrolled down far enough on Netflix. I am still, (laughs) one of the things I try and do is be quite uh, measured about how much I let algorithms like that pick what I do. So by and large, I decide what to watch before I open up Netflix so that I won't be, you know, scrolling through a list of 40 things and then find, A, find the uncomfortable truth about what it knows about me. Like, (laughs) you like turgid superhero films starring pretty white men. It's like, oh no, no, this is too real, <laughs> I'm Netflix. so red, so red. 
So obviously I'm also a person who watches a lot of superhero stuff <laughs> and uh, science fiction, especially, which is why one of the episodes of the podcast this year that I found the most interesting is this one we did about basically sci-fi and why we're so obsessed with it. We talked about flying cars and then we interviewed a sci-fi author, Cameron Hurley, about why she thinks people are so obsessed with these kind of weird hangovers from like 1950s science fiction mm. that aren't really that workable anymore, but we still want them because they've been a staple of science fiction for so long. We still want our flying cars. We still want our domestic robots, that sort of thing. Yeah, right. Like, so like the Fallout games. Where basically the entire point of the game is that the apocalypse happened in the 50s. So everything is based on their idea of what the future would be like. So yeah, we've got these robots that float around the house and do chores. And, you know, I'm sure there's something about flying cars in there. It feels like it's the last time science fiction was sort of optimistic. Do you think that's it? I feel I do, I do feel like we are having a turnaround at the moment because... Um, so Cameron mentioned this, actually. She was talking about the science fiction she grew up with was really dystopian and, you know, cyberpunk, right? Mm. But, we're, but we're living cyberpunk now. Yeah, you know, we are. What we are happens just if big data? Well, it's happening. Crappy so. dystopia. Yeah. So I think that there is, I mean, the stuff that Cameron writes is is a, is a really new look at sci-fi. Um, she does all this stuff that's based on like, I mean, it's very woman-led. I definitely read one of her novels. But yeah, but it's really interesting and kind of um, use of the, the natural world and moving away from the very like chrome heavy mm-hmm. <laughs> sci-fi mm-hmm. that we're used to. Do you, do you not see that a more positive twist in sci-fi? I've seen a few. One of my uh, favorite sci-fi novels that I've read recently was by Becky Chambers. Uh, oh, I love her. Yeah, A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, mm. um, which was had in its DNA clearly uh, a little bit of Firefly, the, the old Joss Whedon TV show, and a little bit of Mass Effect. Kind of, it, it was basically space friends, right? Like mm. fun people flying around space, largely getting on with each other, and f- pushing through trials and travails through team team building and fellowship and that 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 was optimistic I, I liked that but I do feel that part of the reason why it was optimistic was that it was fundamentally science fiction about characters and people rather mm. than science fiction about the state of the world I've not read much science fiction that sort of is trying to make a commentary on the present day or a commentary on how the future could evolve that that doesn't feel these days a bit a bit pessimistic am I wrong I feel like as the world gets more and more dystopian, <laughs> it will be an inevitable result. In the 50s, the, the reason for a lot of the utopianism, as well as you know the, the, the psychology of coming out of a, a vastly destructive war and imagining a better future, part of it was that, you know, it was looking at the rapid technological progress of the previous few years and, and extrapolating, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so much has changed over the past five, 10 years. Imagine how much more is going to change over the next. But seeing that in a positive, and the thing I find quite interesting is that it feels hard to argue that the last 10 years haven't been one of the most rapid aeons of technological progress, you know, over the last century. But now I feel like most people and certainly most science fiction authors are looking at the the idea of what the world would be like if that progressed for another 100 years. And they're not really coming down on the side of like, hey, it's going to be great. Imagine if algorithms get this much more powerful for 10 times this long. It's mostly like, oh... Which is strange, right? Because, you know, in the 50s, it was it was nuclear, right? Yeah. Which obviously is a thing that could have catastrophic <laughs> effects on humanity in the same way that big data can. In fact, yeah, absolutely. in probably a much worse way. I mean, there, way. there was a lot of pessimistic science fiction mm. at that, that time. It's just that there was also this sort of happy Jetsons vision of the future. Mm. And that's, I feel, what's 
I wonder if it's just that we're a bit more switched on. Maybe, or maybe now. it's maybe it's just that the Jetsons had a disproportionately large influence, and that we're all focusing on one kids t- kids cartoon show while ignoring the vast gamut of pessimistic 1950s sci-fi. Jetsons. Very much of its time. So, speaking of the future, after the break, we're going to look at first some other stories from 2018 that we didn't get the chance to cover ourselves, but that definitely weren't a mention. But also, we will look ahead to next year and what we're expecting could make a splash in our 2019 New Year's wrap. We'll be right back. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Hey, podcast fans. Looking for something fun to do over the festive period? Maybe you or someone you know got a Google Home as a gift. Well, we want to tell you about the Guardian's Year in Review, a project we've been working on with The Voice Lab. It's a fun, interactive review of some of The Guardian's biggest and oddest headlines of 2018. So, if you've checked out The Guardian's podcast this year, we think you'll enjoy Year in Review. To play, just say, hey Google, talk to Year in Review. Bye for now. Bye. Welcome back to Chips With Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this week I'm joined by The Guardian's UK tech editor, Alex Hearn. Hello. Right, so before the break, we looked at some of our favourite pieces of work that we did for either The Guardian newspaper or for this podcast. But Alex, is there anything that you would have liked to have covered that you didn't get a chance to? What other stories caught your eye? Literally, just as the year was coming to an end, uh, The New York Times published the story that I am the most jealous of not having written myself of of anything that's been published this year. Uh, They managed to crack a area of tech, which it's one of those things that inside tech, everyone knows, quote unquote, right? But it's been very hard for us to really explain what's so bad about it. Mm. It is the pervasive tracking of your location by smartphone apps. And it's easy to on the surface say, well, that, you know, that sounds bad. People don't like to be tracked. But what's been tricky is a demonstrating what that tracking actually entails, how widely uh, it's done and how many people are affected and b just what comes from it. So the New York Times, and, and I would kill to know how they got this, <laughs> managed to secure a database of one million people's locations uh, in the New York City area gathered by an advertising company that uses uh, third party smartphone apps to, to haul in location data. From that, what they did was they just showed the sort of insights you can uncover from people's location. 
Obviously, that includes where they live, where they work. You can also, for instance, identify uh, 50, 60 children in the data set whose uh, phones arrive at a school, stay in the grounds of the school till about 8.30, go into the school, leave the school for recess, go into the school and come out at three. You know, OK, so you've, you've found kids in the data set. Well, in Europe and uh, in some states in America, that would imply you know, huge amount more privacy protection, but not in all states. And then what the New York Times did was just break down how a data set like that gets formed. And that's the that's the side of it that we all know where Quite we exactly where we is a vastly smaller subset of the world than it should be. Uh, it is, for instance, a large number of weather apps, of restaurant finder apps, this sort of thing, which can justifiably ask for your location but when it does it is not bound by any contract or requirement with the platforms to only use that information for its you know front of the box purpose they all to be clear are doing this completely legally which perhaps is more about what the law should mm. be than than what their behavior should be because they have privacy policies that do say that they can use your uh, location to serve targeted adverts to you so this reminds me of the the Venmo public by default project that we talked about in an earlier podcast episode where Hung Doty Duck found uh, public transactions for a certain group of people and was able to just publish exactly what those transactions had been to kind of raise awareness of the fact mm. that on Venmo, unless you checked this box to say, don't make my transactions public, all of them were. So, you know, you've got people who are selling weed um, on Venmo because, you know, you think that it's a bit more secure. Turns out not so much. So do you think something will come of this then? Will people stop using location services? Will we maybe get a change in the law? Obviously, this is something we talk about a lot, how mm. the law just doesn't catch up with technology. So the upside of Venmo is that it was quite clearly a, a bad decision by one company that could be rectified. The problem with this is it is systemic and systematic. You know, it's not one company. It's not one setting. It is the entire advertising ecosystem is very, very happy to use this. And the problem is that consent just doesn't really work as a basis for privacy because privacy policies are long and not read and people give consent to a lot of things. So the only two real outcomes are either you actually have to drastically enforce rules on, quote, meaningful consent, which hasn't really been fought in many courts to date because it's really hard to define, or you have to just start going, well, actually, it doesn't matter if people consent to this stuff. You still can't do it. Is this going to make users, like regular people, change their behavior at all, do you think? The problem is, and one of the reasons why this is such a bleak story, is there's not a huge amount of behavior that you can change. If you are on an Android phone, then the settings and permissions regime is quite complicated. Google hasn't acted as a perfect gatekeeper of the app store. And a lot of people, particularly in China, use third-party app stores anyway, which means that there isn't really a, a centralized port of control on this. And even if you're on iOS, the only option you have really is enable or not enable location data. And mm. if you're using something like a weather app, so unless you actually sit down and work out which companies you trust with your data, there's not much you can do about this. And in an ad-funded ecosystem, as frankly with most of the digital economy, for that value of trust, I'm not sure there are many you can trust. Oh, that was bleak, wasn't it? Do you have anything better? Anything happier? Um, 
not quite, I'm afraid. <laughs> there are there are kind of a few things that we didn't get a chance to cover this year. So things like net neutrality, which we mentioned in I think one or two episodes, but didn't get a chance to really dig into. And obviously that's that's a huge thing with huge ramifications that we just haven't had the time to look at. Um, there was also the Uber autonomous vehicle killing a pedestrian, um, which is just a really complicated thing and there was one more story that I kind of saw from the sidelines but didn't get to dig into and that was the Google walkout over sexual misconduct allegations we didn't cover it for the podcast but you wrote about it right yeah I went down uh went down there to to cover it I found it at the time a really interesting uh event you know put it putting aside for a moment what it was about it was just a fascinating sort of reinvention of what organized labor looks like in the tech economy in 2018 Mm. because this was a strike essentially you know a a short symbolic strike where a huge number of the participants in the london office certainly were actively afraid of being seen to be publicly doing this they didn't want to speak to the press they weren't really happy with their faces being attached to it this is fundamentally a non-unionized workplace right so in in the old style language of of unionization and workplace politics this was a wildcat strike uh but nonetheless it's fascinating that some people who are objectively some of the most uh valuable employees in the world don't have the power within the workplace to publicly protest even in a situation like this where there is overwhelming it seems support from inside the company for their movement nonetheless the thing that happened over the course of that day as the story you know moved to first the east coast of america and the west coast of america because it happened at 11 a.m local time all around the world was the sheer weight of numbers actually started shifting that i i had a cynical tone earlier on in the day in the grand scheme of things by the time it hit mountain view it was quite clear that this was actually a very large movement that had a strong chance of achieving its aims. And I think that as that became clear to the Google protesters as well, they started opening up. They started talking to the press. They started being happier to be seen protesting their company's uh, operations. And this question of unionization, like the, the fact that Google employees don't have a union seems quite astonishing. I don't know if I've got a warped view on this, though, because I have seen all this stuff happening in the video games industry, mm. um, which obviously you and I both follow very closely. But uh, Game Workers Unite, they've just launched a UK union and it's it's having ripples all mm. around the world. I think it started in America. But are we seeing more tech companies' employees unionize? I mean, the, the true answer still is no, actually. The, the tech industry is so resilient to, to unionization. I think it's also the labor politics of the tech industry are odd. It's, it's one sector of the economy where labor already has a huge amount of bargaining power. The same thing that means that you don't feel a push to join a union is why you have a, a seven-figure starting salary mm. if you have a, a machine learning PhD and are joining a company like DeepMind. If you're earning seven figures you probably don't really feel the need to join up with your colleagues and bargain for better conditions. You have pretty bloody good conditions already. Although not necessarily if you're a woman exactly. or a person of colour. Or... So what's happening is you're kind of seeing uh, unionisation cut across different uh, issues than than traditional unionisation, you know, has happened at the turn of the last century. Rather than a desire to push for sort of straight high pay, you're seeing solidarity between temporary employees and contracted employees and staff you're seeing solidarity uh, in workplaces which are overwhelmingly 
uh, white and Asian and male, you're seeing uh, solidarity with um, outsourced employees overseas. And you're seeing, and a big part of it, is a desire to control what your work is used for. And I think in some of the bigger companies, that might end up being one of the larger drivers for unionization. Okay, so obviously there have been some not so great stories to come out of the tech world this year. But what about next year? Is there anything to look forward to? Do you have anything to be hopeful for? I am really hopeful that 2019 is the year that we can all just stop thinking about cryptocurrencies for a bit. (laughs) Uh, It has occupied an uncomfortably large proportion of the tech press's minds, the column inches, the invested capital. And so far, essentially nothing has come of it. It's been one of the certainly a very large boom and bust. But, you know, there have been boom and busts in tech before. What's interesting here is it's been a boom and a bust and nothing has been left. There's no railroad tracks where at least you've got infrastructure built. There's no Mm. useful companies climbing out the wreckage with low valuations. There's just nothing. Maybe, maybe we can just all ignore it for a year. And then if in 2020 there's still something there worth looking at, I'm hopeful about that. (laughs) So just take a year off. Take a year off. Just take a year off. I did like the one mention that we made of uh, cryptocurrency in our podcast, which was about kind of blockchain art. I thought that was possibly Mm -hmm. the most interesting perspective Mm -hmm. you could have on blockchain, but I totally agree with you. God bless artists, because artists can make anything interesting and can make anything (laughs) useless vaguely worthwhile. Um, I appreciate I I kind of tricked you a bit that that was a hope for a negative. How about you? Do you have anything more, more positive to be hopeful for? Yeah, so unfortunately, my choice isn't very hopeful either. Um, I just want to pause here for a while and tell the listeners, I promise we do actually love tech, the tech world, digital culture. We wouldn't be doing the jobs we do if we didn't. Chips has been accused of hating technology in the past, but that isn't true. We just, when a big story comes along, we cannot ignore it. And, you know, often the important stories are the uncomfortable ones. So my potential worry the next year is what will happen to the tech industry when Brexit happens? I mean, if Brexit happens, mm. when Brexit happens, who knows at this point? I mean, the tech industry does feel a bit more exposed than most, doesn't it? Yeah, like, so I've been seeing it in video games again, and sorry to bring it back there, but I know you also love them. Yeah, I'm um, right. But there's this group Games for EU, right, who are trying to protest Brexit because the games industry relies so much on European talent, mm-hmm. for instance. Uh, is that also true across the tech industry? Yeah, so... Um, tech has historically you know involved quite a lot of mobile workers people Mm. uh flock to tech conglomerations uh places like silicon roundabout in old street places like berlin where there is uh small clumps of high value creation tech businesses with brexit being particularly so focused on taking control of our borders a lot of people in in both tech and games are just basically worried that they're not going to be able to get the experts that they need and and it's not a case of sort of as uh, as some people have said you know well why not just hire british experts the combined output of british universities in say machine learning just doesn't equal yep. the combined number of new machine yeah. learning jobs that that could change slowly over time but we're talking about industries who are hiring now not hiring in four years at the end of a 
graduate conversion course. Even outside of things quite as complicated as machine learning, basic programming. We have a skills gap in the UK. Mm -hmm. We don't have enough kids learning how to program. And then on top of that, of course, tech is an area where regulation is rapidly becoming a hugely important area. Mm -hmm. So the, the other big thing that the tech industry is concerned about in the UK is just not getting a say in that. GDPR has changed the world, not just changed Europe when mm. it comes to, to data protection regulation. It's set a model for other countries. America is very explicitly looking to Europe for a lead, or Australia, so as New Zealand. Uh, and you know that, that regulation was created with input from the British industry. After Brexit, that, that simply won't happen. Fine for the multinationals who have a presence in Europe, but if you're a relatively large UK firm, you're going to be a rule taker, not a rule maker. Mm. The The question of whether or not the UK tech sector can thrive in an independent Singapore style low tax nation versus one that is pegged into the wider networks of trade. I'm not investing money in the UK tech sector and the people who are seem to still be doing it. Mm. So there is some hope there. A hopeful note to end the show. And while we're on this trail of thought, what are some of the great things to come out of the tech world this year? I, the, the place I would focus on is actually consumer technology, which has just kind of gone from strength to strength. I think the lowering prices of noise cancelling Bluetooth headphones are going to make everyone saner on public transport. <laughs> I think the Switch finally being widely available in shops is going to make... The Nintendo Switch, everybody. <laughs> even more people saner on public transport because it's just a beautiful little games console. Mm -hmm. And I think the Apple Watch has finally justified its existence with the new version that came out this year. What's so great about the new Apple Watch? Uh, it is larger screen on a smaller frame. It has a longer battery life. It has a much prettier screen. And it has this uh, ECG monitor, which is kind of a first in consumer hardware. As someone who has had a history of heart conditions, it's quite nice to potentially be able to uh, more regularly and passively monitor the health of my heart in a way that I could get to my doctor. Plus, if I trip and fall, it could call 999. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, for me, I think one of the greatest tech stories to come out of 2018 that I will remember is the Mars InSight landing. Oh. So the lander that we landed on Mars, and I got to go and watch it land with some of the scientists who'd worked on the tech. And just, it's just incredible what we can do now. You know, we can land this incredibly sensitive instruments on a planet hundreds, thousands, however many miles away it is. And you all know, planned years in advance. Planned years in advance and watch it happen with an eight minute delay. It's but just incredible. You don't even know whether it's landed when you start watching it descend. Like, that still always gives mm. me chills. Anyway, that's it. That is our final show for 2018. Alex, thank you so much for helping me to relive it in all of its uh, <laughs> I think that's the last glory. time we need to relive 2018. <laughs> yes. Let's write it out of the history books forever and never so speak weird, of it again. weird the way it went straight from... Tw actually, 2017. Shall we just skip from 2010 to 2020 and just lose the whole decade? I know. Try to remember the last good year. That's a path we don't want to go down. A huge thanks to all of our contributors this year who helped us explain what the heck was going on with tech. And of course, a huge thanks to you listeners who have tuned in and kept me here in this studio. We will be back in 2019, which is next week for anyone checking the calendar. I hope you enjoy the New Year's celebrations wherever you are. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks, as always, for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.